0: Side of Midnight with Frank Murano.
1: Fighting soldiers from the sky. Fearless men who jump and die. Men who mean just what they say. The brave men. Of the green this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, I was very pleased to see some news this week from, of all places, CNN, which showed that there is now growing consensus among Americans, in fact, now it's a majority, that don't want to continue endlessly funding the Ukrainian war effort. Of course, the bipartisan consensus in Washington seems to be completely removed from where the polling suggests the American people wanted to go. So in any event, I'm reading an article last week And the headline made perfect sense to me. And it seemed to underscore the folly of where America's leaders, Democrat and Republican, are right now. The headline of that column very simply was, make peace, you fools. America's proxy war with Russia has transformed Ukraine into a graveyard. This is precisely what I've been saying. This is precisely what I've been trying to highlight. And contrary to people that think a diplomatic end to this solution makes you somehow a pro Putin stooge. This, I believe, is the best thing not just for the Russians but the Ukrainians and certainly for the Americans. I thought to myself, I have got to interview whoever wrote this column. Lo and behold, I scrolled down to the bottom and I should not have been the least bit surprised that its author was the modern day intellectual giant and warrior giant, retired Colonel Douglas McGregor, a senior fellow with the American Conservative, former advisor to the Secretary of Defense in the Trump administration, a decorated combat veteran, and the author of five books. Somewhere along the line, he managed to pick up a Ph.D. as well. Colonel McGregor, it's great to talk to you
0: again. Good to talk to you, Frank.
1: Colonel, let me begin with the polling that I alluded to. Uh, We're seeing now that uh, it's not just a Republican thing, not just a Democratic thing. (laughs) Americans on both sides of the aisle, and even people that don't necessarily consider themselves Democrat or Republican, liberal or conservative, they're a little... Fed up with continuing to support the Zelensky government in their war with Russia. Why are America's leaders not yet frustrated with this?
0: It's nothing short of a miracle that uh, Americans have turned out to be so rational, because, as you know, they simply haven't had much of the truth. Uh, They've been lied to repeatedly now for months and months and months about what was going on in uh, Ukraine and why the war was being fought. Somehow or another, miraculously, they've they've penetrated the veil of deceit and they figured things out. Now, the problem for Americans in general is that the Uniparty, because I've, I've effectively given up on talking about Republicans and Democrats, I just talk about the Uniparty and the mm-hmm. swamp that runs everything, really takes their cue entirely from donors. So what we live with today, unfortunately, is government by donor. And the donors, these are the American equivalent of Russian oligarchs, uh, the billionaires and the millionaires in the main, want the war. Uh, This is not something that anybody in the United States asked for. No one in America was ever consulted and said, do you want to turn Ukraine into a forward base for NATO from which it can attack uh, Russia? Of course not. Nobody asked for that. Nobody wanted it. So now that this entire proposition has failed... Uh, Americans are saying, well, look, let's cut our losses and get out. But unfortunately, uh, the donors want to keep going. And as long as the donors own the Congress and own the Senate and own the presidency, uh, I suppose this is going to drag on. In your
1: column, you encourage Washington to sort of do what Saudi Arabia is doing now, which is play a lead role in mediating an end to this conflict coming to the negotiating table and asking all sides to keep in mind, look, both the United States and Russia have a massive nuclear arsenal. This is just uh, an incredibly foolish errand to keep inching towards incremental nuclear war. Uh, Where do you see things going from here, Colonel?
0: Well, it's very difficult to predict with any certainty, but I think... Uh, There is a a debate behind the scenes inside uh, the Beltway, and in particular in the White House and the Department of State. And some people are saying, look, uh, this can't go on. We've got bigger fish to fry here. We have an election next year. We've got to figure a way to get out of this. And one of the suggestions is to begin the process of blaming the failure of the proxy war on the Ukrainians that have been fighting it. I think we've already seen that happen in the New York Times, the Washington Post. Mm-hmm. where you'll, you'll read these lines in Time magazine that says, well, you know, we've given Ukrainians everything they wanted. We've given them everything they've asked for, and they still can't seem to make it work. It's, it's the kind of thing that I remember listening to people say about Vietnam towards the end. In 1969, 70, 71, I said, look, we've done everything. We, we've given them everything, and, uh, you know, it's time for us to get out. In other words, whatever had nothing to do with us, when in reality, of course, the opposite is true. We created this proxy war. We installed this government in Kiev in in 2014. We drove them forward. We promised them the world. Uh, Biden and Boris Johnson both promised Zelensky, we'll give you everything. You'll have the entire scientific industrial power of the United States and NATO behind you. The Russians have no chance because all of the underlying assumptions were wrong. And they were wrong because people said, well, you know, Russia is just this gas station with uh, nuclear weapons, that there's nothing to it, that the Russians are weak. And then we began lying to everybody, telling them that, well, you know, the Russians are stupid. They're incompetent and so forth and so on. So here we sit a year and a half later. Uh, Ukraine is destroyed. It's down to perhaps 19 or 20 million in population. At least 14 million have left the country. Uh, We think now somewhere between 350 and 400,000 Ukrainian soldiers have been killed. Uh, I saw some overhead imagery recently that suggested that 123,000 freshly dug graves are waiting to receive dead Ukrainian soldiers, even now as we speak. This is a catastrophe. It's a disaster. It needs to end. But to end it, if you're not going to tell the truth, and I don't see much evidence that anyone in Washington will, The answer is, well, you know, it's not our fault. It's someone else's fault. And everyone hopes that uh, they can simply place the blame on the Ukrainians and quietly over time turn everybody's attention to the new great threat, that being, of course, China. And so I see more and more emphasis on China. I see an effort to de-emphasize Ukraine. And to blame things on the Ukrainians.
1: Let me people may be uh, just shocked because what you're saying is so different from what they'll read in The New York Times and see on cable news. And it doesn't matter whether their favorite channel is conservative or liberal, because on this issue, they're very much in, in lockstep. But the conventional wisdom, the narrative that's spun on the mainstream media outlets is, well, wait a minute, Vladimir Putin invaded his nation. Forced him to invade his neighbor. He invaded Uh a sovereign country. Why is that rationale flawed? You can understand why people who hear you talking about the United States role in bringing this conflict to fruition might bristle at that a little bit. Why is the conventional narrative incorrect?
0: Well, first of all, we, we, we could spend hours explaining why it's fundamentally false. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about why this false narrative suggesting that all of this is simply because Vladimir Putin woke up and dreamed of reconquering Eastern Europe and decided to march into Ukraine. First of all, we have the hangover from the Cold War. People listened for decades. The bottom line is that I think we're dealing with uh, the hangover from the Cold War, obviously. People are used to hearing terrible things about the Soviet Union. Uh, people haven't made in the United States the adjustment to to a Russia that is not communist, a Russia that is not bent on expansion, a Russia that is not incurably hostile to the West. That's part of the problem. The second part of the problem is that you know people are still willing to believe the mainstream media. One would think after the Russia hoax with Donald Trump and and this entire clown show in Washington that have tried desperately to depict him in such unfavorable terms, that at least half the population have long since walked away from the mainstream media. So that's part of the problem. But the thing to keep in mind is that Ukraine was picked by us some time ago as a place that we wanted to expand NATO. The promise was made early on to Gorbachev Uh, That we would not take advantage of the withdrawal of Soviet forces from the region. We would not expand eastward beyond Germany. Obviously, all of that was thrown under the bus under Bill Clinton. And then we began this actively hostile policy towards Russia, and we sent some of the worst people you could begin to imagine over to Russia to advise them on what they should do with their economy. It was so appalling that Joseph Stiglitz, the Nobel Prize winner, backed off and said, This is a catastrophe. Mm. We're. We're trying to force Russia down this road to pure capitalism. It can't do it. This is going to have terrible consequences. All of this came together. Putin picks Russia up out of the gutter, recovers it from the ruins, and tries desperately to convey to us the fear in Russia of having NATO immediately on its border, particularly given what they saw happen to Serbia in the Balkans, what they saw happen in Georgia, and that's one of the reasons why, when the when the coup occurred and we installed this radical nationalist government with the help of the CIA and Kiev, that people in Russia said we've got to act immediately, and they went and seized Crimea, which historically was Russian anyway, where the population was Russian and disliked the Ukrainians intensely. So they went into Crimea because. They saw that becoming almost immediately a naval base for the United States Navy. So here we sit after all this nonsense. 14,000 people were killed between the outbreak uh, of the the coup in 2014 and today, or actually in uh, January of 2022. Because the Ukrainians immediately began attacking the Russian people that lived on the eastern side of Ukraine and treating the Russians as third-class human beings, brutalizing them, mistreating them. And, of course, none of that got any attention in the press. Russians were bad. Ukrainians were good. It's this black and white treatment of everything. You know, it's not surprising, but I think Americans have said, wait a minute. You said that we were going to win, that the Ukrainians were going to win. Then you told us they were winning and they were winning and they were winning becoming increasingly obvious that after 180 billion dollars worth of aid and cash ukraine is a catastrophe everybody's leaving the place is falling apart hundreds of thousands of people have died well this was a bad idea and the american people have the incentive to step in and say stop and of course that's a very intelligent thing but again the donors won't quit
1: You alluded to NATO a couple of times, and obviously you're no stranger to dealing with NATO. Uh, You have uh, a lengthy history in public service working with NATO. You were the, or at least one of the top planners of the 1999 NATO bombing of Yugoslavia. You've dealt with NATO leadership. You've dealt with the leadership and the military of other NATO countries. One of the things that's come about as a result of this Russian Ukraine war is that NATO has expanded even more. Finland officially joined NATO uh, back in April. It's looking now like Sweden is going to be joining the alliance, abandoning historical neutrality. Explain to Americans listening what that means um, in terms of where that leaves American Mm. security. Explain to folks where that leaves us. Uh, A lot of people might think, all right, the the bigger NATO is, the better, the more safe that makes America. the more we're able to provide for everybody's common defense. Is that the case?
0: Uh, No, actually, it's the opposite. The sad truth of the matter is that most of the countries are quite small. You look at Finland, there are, what, 5 million Finns. Uh, Sweden has got perhaps 8 million people. These countries are not adding to the scientific industrial power of the United States. They are not adding to American security They're effectively joining an organization that already consists of military dependencies. Germany was the one state that at one point actually fielded large and powerful forces, but then systematically disarmed itself, uh, leaving, leaving essentially the United States almost alone. The only other state with a sizable and powerful military, of course, is Turkey. And most people regard Turkey as at most a paper ally. So, no, we're not more secure from this. What we've done is we've created an enormous problem for ourselves in, ter- in terms of trying to secure everybody and their future. Uh, so that's that's one problem. Second thing is when Eisenhower was president in the 1950s, he encouraged neutrality. He was very happy when Austria became neutral and hoped that most of Eastern Europe could be neutralized because he said we can't possibly defend all of these countries. Well, that was in the 1950s when we were Probably stronger as a nation in terms of social cohesion, scientific industrial power, finance, military, everything than we are today. Much, much stronger. Today, we are actually at a weak point. And this is the wrong time for us to expand our obligations. I mean, there's an old expression, covenants without swords, what the British used to talk about in the 1920s and 30s. The British Empire took on more and more responsibilities, including the defense of Poland in 1939, which it absolutely could not provide. And yet they did it. They expanded their obligations, but they didn't have the forces to back it up. That's our problem at this stage of the game. And meanwhile, the Russian military is now stronger and larger than at any time since the 1980s, with modern equipment and excellent soldiers who are actually very well trained and very well led.
1: If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Colonel Douglas McGregor. He's uh, one of my favorite guests. He's a retired U.S. Army colonel, former senior advisor to the Secretary of Defense, an author and a senior fellow at the American Conservative. I have to ask you about this situation in Niger. Niger is the latest country in West Africa to fall victim to a coup. Evidently, the military has thrown out the president there, and they are engaging along a very different path when it comes to foreign policy. This has a lot of uh, military leaders and a lot of diplomats in Washington worried. What do you think the implications of this Niger coup are for the
0: United States? Well, something to keep in mind is that uh, Niger and the countries that surround it have become uh, very, very closely tied to the United States as well as France in many ways. Now, All of these countries were originally part of of the uh, French North African Empire. When the French officially decolonized, they retained in all of these states uh, interests that were purely commercial. And these interests that are commercial had to do with mining, the extraction of minerals, many other things. And there were sweetheart deals that were made with the new governments. And, of course, at the time when Niger and, and the, its neighbors became independent, they needed a lot of help and support from the French. Over, the, over time, the French have made themselves extremely unwelcome in North Africa. Uh, the French are now seen as really just an extension of their former colonial presence. And the leadership in these countries, the new leadership, the people coming to power have had it with them and want them out. We, unfortunately, in the meantime, insinuated ourselves into the region because we saw some strategic value in having an enormous airfield in the middle of the Sahara in Niger. At the same time, we wanted to establish a presence there to work with the French uh, against the Islamists who were beginning to crop up and develop and expand in the region. But the truth is, uh, once we came in there, the Islamist revolt, if you will, the rebels against us, really didn't exist. And it was our very presence that acted as a catalyst for the emergence of new Islamists. So now uh, the, the local population is very, very angry with us, as well as the French. And the interesting thing is that many of these military officers have been trained by us and educated by us thanks to this Africa command that we set up years ago, we've insinuated ourselves into their military establishments uh, ostensibly for the purpose of, quote-unquote, promoting liberal democracy, and what we've got instead are people that are furious with us, that see us as aiding and abetting the French exploitation of their countries. They've rebelled against their leaders who they see as colonial lackeys, Blackies of France and the United States, and they're throwing us out. And frankly, uh, Frank, we should get out. Africa is Africa. It's not part of us. It's not part of France. And the people that live there need to determine their destinies. We should demilitarize our relationship with those people. But I'm sure that we'll refuse to do that.
1: A lot of Americans read reports of the role that the Wagner group Played In the uh, Niger coup, and it has uh, even there were even some reports of waving Russian flags and uh, things of that nature. It does remind a lot of folks of the height of the Cold War when the communist bloc and the West were sort of fighting for the latest third world country that would align with them as opposed to their adversary. Is this a new Cold War? War, not based on communism but based on nato versus everybody else
0: you know i think in some ways it is in other ways it's not you know first of all wagner did not make this coup happen this happened for reasons that have nothing to do with the wagner group secondly yes they've been waving uh, russian flags and we saw the same sort of thing happen years ago with nasser in egypt where, when it became clear, when it became clear that the United States and the West were not going to provide Egypt with the assistance it needed, they simply turned in, in the direction of the Russians to get it. And remember that uh, the Africans, in particular, particularly Sub-Saharan Africa, is not just the the region that we're talking about, was recently granted uh, effectively a debt holiday by Putin. He forgave a debt of twenty-three billion dollars and said, look, uh, you're, you're not going to be able to pay it back, and it's, it's too much of a struggle. Let's forget it and restart the clock at zero. Well, you could imagine that the people in the region were ecstatic, uh, and that's really what they need to get out from under the debt uh, bomb that, that hung over them. So he's made himself very popular there, and the Russians are popular, and I think you'll find that in most of the world, Latin America, Africa, Southeast Asia, Uh, Even in Northeast Asia, people are very sympathetic to the Russians and, and what has happened to them in Ukraine because they see Russia as under attack, which it is under attack by Ukraine and Ukraine's backers, the United States and NATO.
1: Yeah. <laughs> We are seeing a lot of talk of a new Russian-Chinese alliance. The news this week that the uh, U.S. was dispatching four warships and a reconnaissance plane after China and Russia carried out a, a joint naval patrol near Alaska has mm-hmm. a lot of folks uh, a little bit worried. Some people are saying this Chinese-Russian flotilla involved 11 vessels. That's what the Wall Street Journal reported, and that it, ent- it uh, never entered. US waters, but it marked what some analysts are saying is a historical first in coming uh, awfully close to U.S. waters in the Bering Sea. What do you think the significance of this, uh, this joint patrol near Alaska is, and is this the latest step in a Russian-Chinese alliance?
0: The Russians uh, have watched over many years as the United States Navy and its allies in NATO have held exercises in the Baltic. Those exercises involving aircraft and ground forces and naval forces And the naval forces, of course, armed with nuclear weapons, have been exercising less than 50 miles from St. Petersburg, Russia. Uh, Now, technically, the Baltic is not a a Russian lake, Uh, but you're very, very close in the Baltic, which is by ocean standards, a large puddle uh, to Russia. The Russians have seen this go on for years. They protested and wanted us to move our operations further west We've ignored them. Uh, You have a similar situation with the Chinese. Over the last 20 years, we've been sending U.S. naval forces and aircraft either into or immediately along Chinese territorial waters. And more recently, we've sent naval forces routinely through the Strait of Taiwan, and those are, in international law, Chinese waters. Secondly, keep in mind that at no point is there any evidence or anything in the record to suggest that the Chinese have ever stopped a commercial vessel. So when you talk about freedom of navigation operations, those are usually reserved for waters where commercial ships have been at risk. No commercial ship has been at risk of attack by the Chinese. The Chinese are very dependent on access to the sea down through the Strait of Malacca. and and all the way to Africa and India. So the notion that somehow or another they would want to stop anything is, of course, absurd. So now, after all of this time, the Russians and the Chinese put together a very small force of 11 ships, probably a couple of submarines, and they've uh, conducted an exercise in the North Pacific, far from U.S. territorial waters, but in an area where they haven't been previously, and the fact that they're Russian and Chinese trying to work out uh, joint operations has raised some eyebrows. Well, I would argue that we have been behaving as a sort of schoolyard bully for years. And the schoolyard bully runs around and punches people in the face to keep them in line until suddenly, finally says, I've had enough, and hits him in the face. Then the schoolyard bully is upset, and doesn't understand why there's any resistance Well, I think that's what you've seen with Russia and China. They've had enough of us. And this is just a uh, public demonstration of their readiness now to cooperate. And we should pay attention to it because you hear fools in Washington on a routine basis talking about, well, you know, perhaps we should be prepared to go to war with Russia. Listen to Lindsey Graham. Uh, He makes these statements. He's not by any means the only one. Dan Sullivan from Alaska made an equally stupid statement about the events in the North Pacific. I have news for you. If you go to war with Russia, you will be at war today with Russia and China. If you go to war with China, you will be at war today with China and Russia. And by the way, I don't think they'll be alone. I think they will have lots of other nations. They will cast their lot with them because people are tired of the United States bullying them militarily, politically and financially.
1: As far as Taiwan goes, we're now seeing uh, reports that uh, China released a TV documentary showcasing the Chinese army's ability to attack Taiwan. And uh, CBS Sunday morning last Sunday, they did a piece in Taiwan, and they showed that uh, a lot of people in Taiwan seem to be preparing for some sort of a war. Depending on what day you get President Biden, he says something to the effect of the United States is not, it is not going to sit idly by and let China invade Taiwan, and until those remarks get walked back from some of his staffers, it has a lot of people wondering could we be headed towards an armed conflict with China as well as Russia? Uh, Understanding that it may not be likely to happen, what should the United States do if China moves militarily forward with a Taiwanese invasion?
0: Well, we absolutely should not try to move our forces eight or 9,000 miles away from the United States to fight a war on China's doorstep. I argued against any intervention in Ukraine for the same reason. You don't want to fight a great power like Russia or a great power like China on the proverbial doorstep of those nations. We don't have the the manpower. We don't have the the military power to sustain ourselves that far from the United States in a a collision with either of these states. You know, we, we act as though this is 1991. It's not. We are not the nation that we were in 1991. And they are not the same countries that they were in 1991. They are infinitely more powerful, more resilient, and more capable. We don't have any capabilities that they also do not have in some form. So the notion that you could wage a war over there and win third, you would very definitely lose it. So the, the right course of action right now is for us to stay away from Taiwan. The people on Taiwan don't want a war. They're not interested in it. The Chinese don't want to go to war with the people on Taiwan. The original date for reunification that was established by Xi was 2047. We are the ones that have been bringing people into Taiwan and and providing them with modern weaponry. These things are red lines for the Chinese. Taiwan was the unsinkable aircraft carrier for the Imperial Japanese Armed Forces during World War II. All the major... Uh, Formations that invaded China, most of them were staged out of Taiwan, particularly for southern China. They're not going to, they're not going to tolerate any foreign power with influence and control on Taiwan. And I think if you look at Taiwan politics right now, uh, the KMT, which is Chiang Kai shek's old party, is actually positioned to win the elections. And that party is a strong advocate for peaceful reunification with Beijing. And the Democratic People's Party, the the pro-Japanese party, has actually dropped independence from its platform because they know the population in Taiwan doesn't want that. Both Chinese on the mainland and in Taiwan share a very similar aspiration. That aspiration is to live in some society in the future that resembles Singapore. We don't understand that because we're caught up in this fantasy about liberal democracy. Uh, there, there's nobody over there interested in that. They're interested in prosperity and order, both of them. And if we leave it alone, they will work things out together. China is not an aggressive military power. China is not like the Soviet Union. China is not this hopelessly oppressive, murderous regime as depicted here in the United States. But unfortunately, once again, thanks to the history of the Cold War, there's a lot of ignorance about what is true and not true about both Russia and China. And that puts us in the position where we are now. And remember, you've got a Navy that confronts a world in which submarines and space based surveillance rule, the oceans surface vessels are increasingly a thing of the past. We're going to see lots of empty oceans when it comes to warships, because if you put major warships out there with thousands of men aboard, They're going to be found, targeted, and either neutralized or sunk. The Warfare has changed. It's changed on land. It's changed at sea. And we have to come to terms with these things, and people don't want to. What they really want to do is build more ships, build more large capital ships. That puts a lot of money into a lot of people's pockets. But they're frankly not something we need anymore.
1: Colonel, let me end with this. Obviously, there's a presidential election next year and a lot of people like me who are interested in foreign policy and interested in electing someone that's not going to lead us towards nuclear war are interested in candidates like Robert F. Kennedy on the left and Donald Trump on the right. But as someone that voted for Trump twice, which I did. I was quite frustrated that so many of the people in charge of Donald Trump's foreign policy team weren't people like Colonel Douglas McGregor, although you were a, a senior advisor to the sec- Secretary of Defense. They were people like John Bolton and Mike Pompeo and H.R. McMaster and the like. And, and Is it fool me? Is it fool me once? Shame on you. Fool me twice? Shame on me. I, I mean, I'm curious what you're planning on doing with respect to the presidential race, and how can people who may have your view of foreign policy but feel like they were a little bit burned by the Trump administration and some of the key appointments that he made, how can they be comfortable in casting that
0: vote again? Well, that's a good question. I mean, presupposing, of course, that we reach those elections without various calamities between now and then that could distort the election cycle. So setting aside all of that, I don't know exactly what will happen with uh, President Trump. I have a lot of affection for him, but I really don't know uh, what his plans are and uh, the kinds of people that he plans to surround himself with. I just don't. Uh, I think very highly of R.F. Kennedy Jr. And I'll be frank with you. uh, Either of those men would lead what I would call an American first administration. And I would be happy to serve in an American first administration administration under either of them. But again, uh, that's a long way off. There's a lot of water under the bridge. Sure. I still think that we face difficult times ahead for reasons of finance and economics, and also because of the uncertainty in the international env- environment. You know, I listen to Nassim Talib talk frequently about uh, black swans. Well, there are lots of black swans Some of them are in foreign policy. They can come in the form of terrorism or warfare, uh, just as they can come in the form of bankruptcy, bank runs, treasury bond, fire sales, and so forth. I can't predict any of those things right now, but I think we're in for a very bumpy ride. So I wouldn't assume anything at this stage one way or the other.
1: Colonel, we're going to have to end it there. It's always a treat to talk with you. Thanks so much for joining me, as always. Thank you, Frank. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, feel free to give me a call. 800 848 9222, 800 848 9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight.